Hey, hey, hi, Lincoln. How you doing? It is Wednesday, 11.06. That means it's time for How's It Growing, your weekly gardening connection. Hi, I'm Bob H. with the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. Thanks for tuning in today, giving me your time. I'm giving you my time. We, let's, let's have fun together. And man, is it greening up real good. What a rain. I know the airport, uh, I had heard that uh, as of whatever this morning earlier, I know it's still drizzling out there and a nasty day, but uh, they only reported 0.97. I don't know what you got in your gauge, but uh, text me, friends, what you got in your gauge. Mine said three and a half inches this morning down in southeast Lincoln. I'm like going, hmm, 0.97, what? So it makes me wonder that I accidentally, when I was watering the garden, get a little water splashed in the in the uh, rain gauge because <laughs> I have it in the nearby the lettuce but man is the lettuce fat and happy now it's going to be cutting uh gosh once it dries out a little bit I don't want to cut it while the leaves are wet so we'll we'll give it a day or two but uh yeah Pat and I are going to be cutting a whole lot of lettuce here real soon we'll have bags full so lettuce season is sprung upon us excited about that so that's pretty cool stuff so uh well, hopefully you're, uh, you know, hunkered down in this, what feels like, what, early April, high of, what, 55 yesterday or 50, I think it was 50 yesterday and uh, 50, a balmy 55 today. So, hey, uh, what are you going to do about it, right? <laughs> uh, this is Nebraska, as everybody says. Well, I'm sure, pretty sure South Dakota's hurting. And I just talked with somebody with St. Louis, from St. Louis here just a little while ago, about 10 minutes ago, and there was only a high of 60 in St. Louis. So come on, man. It's not bad. It's not just Nebraska. We just drew the borders. Hey, I have a caller on the line. Hello, callers. This is Sarah. It is. Good morning, Bob. Well, how you doing, Sarah? I'm doing real well. How are you today? Not too bad. Uh, this is Good. Sarah Browning from Lancaster County Extension. She is Extension Educator in Horticulture, and thank you so much. Sarah usually comes on the program, gosh, twice a year, and this is a this is our first time of 2022, Sarah, so how That's time right. flies when you're having fun. <laughs> That's right. Can't believe it's April or May already. Right. See, and you May just said April. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to say goodbye to April, and I hate saying goodbye to May because it's, you know, if you if you survey people and say what's your favorite month, usually May is like one or two, and uh, October, September's not far behind, right? Uh, I would assume for most people, but, you know. Where, where does yours fall, Sarah? I'm curious. Um, where I'm sorry, Bob. I your favorite, your favorite month. Where, oh, where what do you? Yeah, what do you think? What's number one and two in your book? Um, probably number one would be October for me because there's still things growing. I can still work in my garden, but the the hot temperatures of summer are usually past. Um, so I can get a lot done in my gardens in in, uh, in October. September probably is is a, a, a good year or a good month for me as well. Um, it seems like the spring just goes by so fast for me, and then uh, and then we're into the hot weather of June, and right. I'm behind in my gardens. And <laughs> yeah. in other words, in October it's not as much stress. You know what's coming, right? right? You know, you're kind of like going, oh, I got time on this. You know, I'm going to get this done. And and what what I love about October, yeah, I, I would put October right up there too. And plus, you got fall color. You know, not to mention that, right? And and right. you know, you're usually still harvesting some things out of the garden, so that makes you feel good and i love making planting beds in october that's one of my favorite things uh, in all these years of public gardening too is is just you know make the bed in october plant it in the spring so then when spring rolls around and you're so busy pulling your hair out with all this other stuff to do you're like 
Well, heck, the bed's already made. Get it? Just like making your bed in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> You've already right. accomplished something. Yep, it's all ready to go. <laughs> right. Uh, don't wait until 8.30 at night or 9 at night to make your bed just so you can make your bed to sleep in it, right? You know. That's but, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that kind of uh, is kind of a self-defeating prophecy because, I mean, you just make it and then you're going to mess it up again. Hey, why not? At least, it, you know, what, whatever whatever trips your trigger. Well, Sarah, I thank you for your time uh, with, you know, one thing, Sarah, I wanted to say, I don't know if you knew Kay Young. Um, Kay Young, uh, a naturalist, longtime naturalist at Pioneer Park Nature Center, um, passed yeah. away uh, this past week at the... Oh young age of 90 and and uh, so a lot of friends you know i'm sure are listening now i just wanted to give a, a you know a word about uh kay and w- her book wild seasons and and she wrote this book back in 1993 because i had to look it up going because i remember the she she gave a presentation at spring affair that year and i had just started my job at the state fairgrounds oh that that previous January I started I remember in the middle of winter which was good because then you can kind of you know get your bearings straight right before you before the busy growing season but anyway she was speaking there one of the speakers at spring affair the old we used to have uh, three speaker tracks and uh, you probably spoke at one of those I'm sure in the back in the day right Sarah I sure did. I figured. And so I'm, you know, I'm this young punk uh, hanging out, checking out the presentations. So I'm kind of standing in the back because I also was working there. So I wanted to make sure if I was needed, I was, could slip right out. Right. And so there she is giving her presentation on gathering and cooking wild edible plants and had her book there as well. Shoot. I said, I'm going to go ahead and buy this. And she, she, uh, basically gave it to me and signed it and everything. Didn't even make me pay any money for it. So, wow, how nice. uh, that was pretty cool. And, uh, all these years later, and I know a friend that has tried, uh, kind of like the, the, what is it? Jules, Julie, Julia, uh, that, that person yeah. that tried to, that movie that came out where they tried to duplicate she tried to duplicate all the recipes in julia child's cookbook right (laughs) and if you've seen that cookbook people that's quite an undertaking and uh and i know a friend that tried to do that with wild seasons where you're gathering something in the spring taking you all the way through the fall and making recipes from Kay's book and she said it was more challenging than i thought it would be um because (laughs) there's lots of different things we can gather in the wilds folks but a uh, great ode to Kay would be for you to go out there and say, I'm going to get that book and uh, and, and make something uh, in honor of Kay. And I would just encourage you, go out there and get some lamb's quarters tonight and cook up something. She has creamed lamb's quarter greens with wild mushrooms recipe that wow. is the bomb. It's like, uh, think artichoke uh, dip, right? Uh, artichoke heart dip. It's basically a lot like that. And then purslane. I don't know, Sarah, if you're aware of how edible and delicious and good for you purslane is. I knew it was edible, but I have never tasted it, Bob. I've never tried cooking it or tasting. Yeah, you know, if you're just sampling it, like going, okay, you're out in the garden, you're weeding, and you see some purslane there, and it's growing in the crack of a sidewalk, that's different than some robust purslane that's growing on the edge of your compost heap. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the purslane leaves there will be more like an inch versus these tiny little guys, right, that you... If it's a stressed purslane, say it's compacted ground, which obviously purslane can pretty much grow in anything, right? Right. So that's, But you're right. If it's in compacted ground and it's not growing very, very well, I would imagine that the flavor won't be quite as good. Exactly. It might be a little bitter. 
Right. And the texture might not be as good. It might be just a little tough. Bingo, bingo. And Kay always felt that why aren't we just cultivating these in the garden? Well, cultivating purslane, well. And of course, now there's some purslanes out there in the gardening trade that, that weren't selected for their edible nature, but for their flowers, right? right? There's actually, exactly. I can't remember the names of those guys, but uh, uh, they didn't do too well for me. I don't know if you've tried to grow them before. They um, just didn't flower very well, I thought. But. I, I have tried them, um, and uh, I liked them. I put them in a really, really hot, sunny spot, and they did well for me. Mm, that's probably um, what I did wrong. I didn't put them in a hot enough... Yeah, you think personally, it's like, give me the heat, right? <laughs> right. Give me the heat, give me the drought. I mean, they laugh at all those things. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Well, anyway, she describes a texture as slick, you know, and, and okay. you could, you could kind of describe the texture of if, if you eat an aloe leaf as mucilaginous or you know, slimy. <laughs> let's say okra. Let's, let's, let's put okra in there. Well, it, she describes it as slick, which I thought was a slick way of marketing the plant saying, you know, it's, it's not, it's not uh, slimy tasting. No, it's not. And anyway, she liked to put it in with tacos because she said lettuce can be kind of wilty sometimes in your taco while purslane gives you a nice crunch and, uh, you know, nice backbone to that taco. So that's one way to have it. She's got a recipe for a casserole that quite honestly, I have not made yet, but Again, now I'm kind of re-inspired to say I need to go back and uh, look at some recipes. And so in Kay's honor, everybody go out there and harvest something out in the wild this week. Maybe it's your own backyard. Maybe it's out traipsing around in the woods in the backcountry, road ditch, whatever. Um, get something made in case honor. Well, uh, so Sarah, I appreciate you joining me today. And, uh, you know, uh, I was on Lancaster County Extension. So folks, the Bible, lancaster.unl.edu. They have lots of other pages there, but there's a, there's pages specifically devoted to horticulture, right, Sarah? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I still think despite having you on the show twice a year and, and, you know, people have a plant question, if you say extension, some people still don't quite know uh, what that's all about. And so if I'm a person with a plant question or say I can't identify something, you know, they, they do have that app, you know, that you can take a picture of it and, you know, is it going to be right or wrong? You can always get a second opinion. Can people email pictures to you, and, and do you prefer that? Say and or say it's one an ID, or two I have problems with my tree or problems with my turf grass or something's looking not so good. Can mm -hmm. they? Do you prefer them to pick email you pictures of those things? You know, it's always helpful to have pictures, Bob, because um, it's it's all it's really hard to describe some of these conditions that happen in in plants. You know and trying to describe a leaf spot or a gall on a leaf or some kind of a, you know, damage to a stem or, a, or the trunk of a plant or a weed in a landscape, you know, it's difficult to describe them. So oftentimes we can do a much better and a much quicker job at identifying the issue if we have pictures. Um, so they can send them to uh, just our main office email account, which is lancaster at unl.edu. Um, uh, or they can send them to me directly, and that would be uh, sarah.browning at unl.edu. Very good. Yeah, and I agree. You know, I, for me, it's like, okay, you can take a really close-up of a plant, too, and I have a hard time when somebody just sends me, 
you know, like say they, they pluck the leaves off and put it on a table and take a picture of it. it it's hard to kind of tell, for me at least, like going, okay, uh, I should know what this is, but I have no idea based on the context. So for me, it's right. like back up and take a picture of it in, in, in where that plant is growing. I think that helps Definitely. you a lot too, right? Because then yeah. you can see, oh, it's in a pretty shady situation, it looks like there. It's probably not too happy about that, so it's stressing the plant. Or maybe it's a hot, dry, sunny area. Maybe it's next to a sidewalk or a, or a driveway or... or you know, a heat island effect from something, right? There could be a lot of different... Uh, sometimes know. we need that background information. Well, and I shouldn't say sometimes. I mean, we really always need that background information um, so that we can really diagnose the problem correctly or identify the plant correctly. Sometimes, you know, people will send us a picture of a close-up of a um, of a leaf or something like that, and we can we can try to extrapolate what's going on but but we really need to know you know the overall vigor of the plant and and a little bit of history and, and background for us to make a a good diagnosis and, and and come up with a good management plan yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because you're right it's like there's so many variables i think that the standard horticultural answer is well it depends because <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it does you know and, and i and i often stick up for the the often bashed pin oak uh, that gets bashed around by lincolnites you know and i think the re- one of the reasons lincolnites don't like them is because well they drop their leaves so late and that gets annoying and i have to rake leaves shoot until march you know or hey i can relate because uh, we have a back patio and the neighbor has a huge pin oak and you know constantly cleaning out leaves in the back patio but for me i look at it it's like going yeah but i love that tree and uh, i'm willing to put up with a little hassle uh because i don't want to see that tree go it'd be completely you know it'd just be heartbreaking and so you know the pin oak that you see folks next to driveways next to curbs next to sidewalks you don't know the history of what the digging that's been going on in around that root system of that tree and i'll use my pin oak out front as an example we're we're, uh, dealing with road construction right now so there's a big gaping uh what 10 by 8 foot hole uh, on one side probably about five feet from the trunk uh you know uh 10 feet down right and then the other side has a pile of nasty looking clay dumped over the root system on top of it um, where they put the soil that doesn't look like anything i'd want to grow in and that's sitting up on top of my roots right now so when it's all said and done they'll bury it and the tree's going to be like going what was that and and the damage may not show up for until year two three four five and all of a sudden the tree's declining or getting chlorotic or whatever well that stress is happening because of the root damage and again you don't know the history of that scruffy looking pin oak you've been driving by for years exactly right yeah and you know we've um, we've we've seen a lot of damage to trees from utility work here in the Lincoln area in recent years, um, and people don't realize, you know, just how damaging all that digging is. Um, and the closer you are to the trunk of the tree, the more damaging it is to the tree. Right. So, it, and you're right, um, Bob. It, it often doesn't show up for for a few years down the road, and so sometimes people don't connect it. You know, they don't connect the digging with the damage that they see three or four years later. No doubt. Yeah, I remember years ago seeing this silver maple that was uh, construction done around it. They put in a new curb, and, and you know, it's probably a lot of equipment on the root system, compacted it, and then they changed the grade because of that curb going in. They, they dumped soil on top of the root system. I swear, 
Oh man, it was like it was like I'm I'm looking at this thing going, well, your days are numbered, buddy. Right. And uh, it was like, man, it took. I swear it took 10 plus years for it to finally die. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, every year though, the canopy was a little thinner maybe or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. so, so. I had anyway. a, an interesting situation in my home landscape too, Bob, where I was having some work done on the foundation of my house and the, the folks came out to do the work and um, the I had a, this ornamental tree in the front yard and, and um, he chose an area about 10 feet from the trunk of the tree uh, to dig a hole, and I I wanted them to go farther away, and he was telling me, oh, the tree doesn't have roots in this area, <laughs> and, uh, and I was just laughing. It's like, of course the tree has roots in that area, and of course that would be damaging, and it, it did affect the tree in the, the few years after that work was done. Were you able to show, uh, after they dug, dug the trench, uh, kind of point down and go, you see that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are roots. <laughs> Those are roots. Yeah, I know uh, we had to have a tree removed with this road construction, which we were sad about. What are you going to do? It was in the right of way, and we were told, you know, nobody sent us a letter. They just put an X on the tree, and the tree crew guys said, you know, that they were going to have to dig all around the trunk. Well, they haven't done that yet. They, they dug one trench about, you know, 10 feet from where the tree was, and all the roots still there from that tree it was like wow it really makes you raise your eyebrows just to see the vast network of life underneath the ground that that we drive by oblivious to every day it's pretty amazing what uh yes. what we put our put our babies the trees through people yes well sarah um okay so i just wanted to give a shout out to lancaster.unl.edu and also to uh, backyard farmer and i must admit i haven't had time to watch this year yet and we just don't watch a whole lot of TV in the spring, and and uh, so how? Uh, gosh, isn't this the 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 big fiftieth anniversary, or is it even longer now? No, actually, it's the seventieth. What? Can you imagine? I'm that? twenty years behind. Okay, yeah. <laughs> seventy years of the show being on the air. It's just incredible. That's a trip. Yeah, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me I've read somewhere it's the longest continu continuous running program. I want to say in the nation. Well, yeah, it's nationally, it's the longest running independently produced television program. Um, you know, so an independently produced local program, it is the longest running program in the nation. Dang. I wonder who's number two. I'd be yeah. curious. About <laughs> <laughs> Curiously, it can't be gardening. Well, that's pretty cool. And uh, right. yeah, there's, uh, and I don't know if you guys are doing some nostalgia stuff uh, this season to kind of maybe show some old videos as Brad kind of got, got some things under his, uh, under his wing to try to you know, highlight they have, that. They have several things um, planned. And um, coming up here in June, on um, let me let me look up the date real quick. Um, June 11th, they're going to have a birthday party for Backyard Farmer during um, the East Campus Discovery Days, which mm. will take place um, on the East Campus Mall. And there will be um, some of the, the panelists from the show will be there on hand to talk with uh, the, the folks who visit um, on June 11th. And people will be able to go over to the Backyard Farmer Garden and uh, take tours of the gardens. So um, you might, folks might want to mark that date on the calendar, Saturday, June 11th. Discovery Days uh, starts at 11 in the, or excuse me, it starts at 10 in the morning and it goes until 2 in the afternoon. Um, so that's just one event that's happening this year uh, as kind of a special celebration of the 70th anniversary. I'm sure that there will be others as the year goes on. Yeah. So folks can just check out the website, uh, which is byf.unl.edu. 
uh, and to and stay up to date with uh, any additional celebrations that are going on. Too cool. Yeah, I like that, you know, that nice, easy website to remember, uh, BYF, um, and bring your friend. Um, so right. or bring your friend to Backyard Farmer. I like That's that. Right. <laughs> you know, I was also going to mention, Bob, you know, I think a lot of people are in the same boat with you. They don't have time in the spring to sit down and watch a television show mm-hmm. at 7 o'clock when it's still nice and sunny outside. Right. I mean, they may be outside working on their gardens. But all of the programs are recorded, and they can all be watched on the Backyard Farmer YouTube channel. So, you know, if you want to watch the show um, at some other time of day or, you know, the following week or whenever, or if you just want to catch up on shows maybe from last year, you know, you can, again, go to the Backyard Farmer website uh, and then um, uh, click through to the Backyard Farmer YouTube channel or just search on YouTube for Backyard Farmer and you'll be able to find um, all of the shows are recorded there. Yeah, that's cool. I'm and I'm curious. Like, say you, you, with your archive shows, if you, if I type it in a subject line, oh, maybe I want to learn about uh, cherry trees, for example. Um, and I'm and I'm typing in sour cherry trees on the backyard farmer website. Will it will it download then um, episodes where cherry trees were discussed or videos maybe where it was discussed? And I'm just throwing cherry trees out there as an example. I believe it will. Um, I'm just going to pull up Backyard Farmer really quick on YouTube and yeah. see if it will um, if it will sort uh, the videos that way for me. Because um, I know during an episode you would you might you know you'll have your panel answering answering questions, but you often do a video or two or three during the during the, the you know the the hour long program where you're highlighting a subject and uh, that's right. you know and maybe that subject would be you know. I don't know, proper planting of a tree, whatever, whatever the case may be. I'm assuming what it's going to do, if it finds that, it's not just going to be somebody's question and you're answering a question. It's probably going to find it if it's a video, I'm assuming. Right. So I just did a quick search on ba- on the Backyard Farmer YouTube channel, Bob, and mm-hmm. for Sour Cherry, and I came up with several videos cool. <clears throat> where cherries must have been discussed. Um, Cool, cool. A couple of them are specific, you know, short videos, like three minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Others are shows, the the entire show, where apparently Backyard far, or um, Cherry was discussed at some point gotcha. during the show. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and in other words, my point to you folks is, you know, it, it, it'll be a question somewhere embedded in that hour-long program. It's not going to be a whole program just about cherries. That's right. Even though they could probably do that, but it probably wouldn't make for very interesting viewing if you're, <laughs> right. if you're just covering... You talk about cherries all night long. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure somewhere in that video, maybe you're talking about your, you know, cultivars or, you know, cherry trees for Nebraska, don't mess with sweet cherries, people, it's not worth it type of thing yeah, versus, right. uh, versus the sour cherry. And, and speaking of that, Sarah, another great resource for people with Lancaster County Extension is because uh, we we call them NEB guides, and I don't know. Well, they're still called NEB guides, right? Yes, we do still have NEB guides available, which are written <laughs> publications that uh, we have available on a variety of topics. And if people want to uh, find if there's a NEB guide on a particular topic, they can go to Extension Pubs. So E X T E N S I O N P U B S dot unl dot edu 
and then you'll have you'll be able to search through all of the various extension publications that are available and see if there's one on the topic that sh- that you're interested in. Yeah, there's a vast array of them, and I want to talk to you a little bit about one uh, um, on fruit trees um, that I know Dr. Reed has kind of revamped and whatnot because. Uh, mm-hmm. People are often saying, what apple should I grow in Nebraska? What cherry should I grow in Nebraska? And, and of course, dealing with extension where you're at uh, in Lancaster County, that's one thing. But um, I know there's a great publication out there that if you're, you know, somebody's contacting you from Scotts Bluff or North Platte or Valentine or wherever in Nebraska, um, you know, you've kind of divided it into regions of the state. Um, so it's easy for um, somebody to not, you don't have to guess. Um, these cultivars have been recognized and proven in those places. And, and yeah, so you can plant with confidence in knowing right. those, those cultivars are, are the good ones. All right, Sarah, I'm going to keep you on the line. I have to take a break here. And when we come back, uh, we'll, we'll talk more uh, extension and uh, maybe see uh, what the popular questions you're getting from Backyard Farmer right now are. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Sarah. All right. That's Sarah Browning, Extension Educator with Lancaster County Extension uh, in Horticulture. I'll be right back right after these brief messages. Mm, little James McMurtry bringing us to the next part of How's It Growing? How's it growing with you people? And hopefully it's uh, growing very well. You're not too soggy. You're in staying warm. And uh, only, uh, I guess, only... In Nebraska, I don't want to say only in Nebraska, but where you have your heater and your air conditioner going almost on the same day. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Sarah? Almost on the same day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, we had to turn the heater on. Uh, I just got home last night. It was just chilled to the bone. It was like, brr. And uh, I don't know, what did you get in your rain gauge? Did you check, Sarah? I didn't. Um, I, I actually don't have a rain gauge at home, Bob. I oh, come really, on, man. really need to get one. <laughs> yeah, you do. It seems to me Backyard Farmer had rain gauges at some point in life. Certainly they have a, a storage area where they have a bunch of them in boxes, yet they didn't get distributed. And you're like, <laughs> I think I need a perk here, guys. Right. Come on, man. How about a rain gauge? <laughs> no, but anyway, either way, we don't know what, if we don't know, I know Mike, uh, thanks Country Mike for texting me saying they had an inch and a half there by uh, by cook but anyway okay. um yeah i think either way it's an inch or above and uh that that swath of rain hit gosh probably the whole eastern half of nebraska it looked up uh looked like on radar you know following the loop it was you know coming up from kansas in the morning going when is this rain gonna hit and i see it at the border Oh, like when I was heading to work, right? And then by the time 11 o'clock hit, here it came, and it, it didn't stop, right, <laughs> until, <laughs> until whenever last night. But, uh, yeah, so um, I think there's still ch- chances of rain in the forecast today, but what we're going to see is light stuff, very misty and, you know, not anything to, you know, cause flooding, that's for sure. But we'll take it. We'll definitely take it. Well, Sarah Browning joining me today, Lancaster County Extension Educator in Horticulture. And uh, and Sarah, gosh, uh, you know, we were talking about fruit tree cultivars. And uh, what's great about it is, again, if you if you go to Backyard Farmer's site or lancaster.unl.edu site and type in, you guys have all sorts of great just quick click things where you can look and say, okay, I'm interested in pollinator plants or... You know, I'm interested in fruit tree cultivars or whatever. Um, if a if a neb guy doesn't come up, um, certainly a video will come up. Um, right, I'm assuming if I if I type in 
like on the Backyard Farmer page, and there's a NEB guide on that subject, will that also show, I wonder? Um, Maybe I not. I think there is a link on the Backyard Farmer site which takes you to um, the Extension Publications website. Gotcha. I don't believe that you can search directly from Backyard Farmer for the Extension Publications. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense because if you try to search just under the, the search engine that is Backyard Farmer, it may not be as specific um, as to just going to the publications themselves and then typing in what, what you're looking for. And the great thing about Backyard Farmer is so you can see a video of it but here, uh, with the and the NEB guides, then you can read up on it as well and uh, and learn about it. So, right, mm-hmm. very good. All right, and so I'm curious. So you've been on the program already this spring because I know you kind of have revolving horticulture seats there, and okay. uh, you've been on the show and. You know, and it seems to me every year, you know, what what are the top three things people ask um, for help on backyard farmer? I think number one is when is it time to put down my pre-emergent, right? For, <laughs> <That's> true. Yes. <laughs> you know, you get that all the time, I'm sure. And another one is uh, black spot uh, or uh, oh, what is it called that on the underside of tomatoes? Um, oh, um, oh, like... Um, it's the name's Blossom End Rot. Yeah, Blossom End yeah. Rot. Mm-hmm. That's probably high up there, right? Yeah, that's a very uh, very common one. Of course, we don't really start to see that until uh, probably mid to late June when, you know, people have tomatoes actually setting on and then the, the Blossom end rot, end rot might actually be occurring. Right. But we get lots of questions on tomato leaf spot diseases. Um, of course, early in the spring, we're still getting lots of cedar apple rust and apple scab and various leaf spot questions on mm. trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, another big one coming up is uh, when do I put on my white grub control? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, it, uh, the first thing I always ask people is, well, do you have a history of white grubs? Do you even really need to put on control for white grubs? You know, I think sometimes the... Uh, you know, we see the the programs set up by the various fertilizer uh, companies. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a four-step program or a five-step program or a six-step program or whatever it may be. But if you don't have a history of white grubs, you may not even need to do that white grub application. Exactly. Don't do it just to make yourself feel better. Um, right. It's like going, well, because, yeah, the four-step program, they're going to say, well, but if you if you go with our program and we do the white grub control, you're never going to have white grubs. It'll be out of sight, out of mind. I'm just like, yeah, but I've never had that problem before in the past. Well, we'll make sure you never have it in the future, too. Yeah. So, if, uh, if you, know. you have a tall fescue lawn, you probably never need to do white grub control because tall fescue, uh, you know, has a... A, a, a beneficial fungus that's associated with the root system, mm. which makes it much more resistant to white grubs. In mm. fact, it, it, it um, will. You, you just don't see a lot of white grubs in tall fescue lawns because mm. of this natural beneficial fungal association with the roots. So, mm. really, it's it's Kentucky bluegrass and perennial gra- perennial ryegrass lawns where we see the most white grub issues. I see, and and people that tend to have big problems, can you usually? kind of trace it back to well here's probably why you have big problems and and if so what would you say i know i can remember a number of years ago answering some questions for a person and uh oh we were out there and they had not had a sprinkler system installed yet and uh I think the the fella was kind of bummed about that because all their neighbors had sprinkler systems except for them. Uh 
And what's funny is um, all their all the neighbors were having big time grub problems, and they didn't have any in their lawn, right? And I was like, "Well, does your lawn still look good?" Well, yeah. And it's like, "Are are you watering as much as?" Well, they turn it on two to three times a week, right? And I'm like, right. "Going okay. Well, they don't need to. They're just right. they're doing that, but they don't need to. And then it just stresses the grass out. So when the heat of summer does come on, the grubs are like fat and happy, going, "Man, I I got some stressed grass here. It doesn't have that natural resistance." Is that is there any truth to that? Yeah, there are definitely management practices that that we do as you know as lawn managers that can make the lawn more susceptible to white grubs, um, and there can be site conditions too. You know, mm. white grubs tend to like a hot, dry locations. You know, with a like maybe a south or a west facing slope. Um, so there, you know, there are definitely things like that that we can do that can make white grubs more of an issue. They the adults like lights at night. So if you have a, a yard light mm. that shines at night, you know, you think about it, the June beetles, which are the adult stage, they love to come to those lights, and they will often then, um, the females will drop down below the lights and lay their eggs, and so then you end up with a white grub problem right in the area where that light is shining. No kidding. So there are simple things like that that, that can um, play into a white grub infestation. And if I'm digging around and say I have a wood chip bed, uh, and I don't want to say wood chip bed, but I have a planting bed, maybe some trees and some shrubs and some perennials in there and I'm kind of uh, poking around and kind of pulling some mulch back and do some planting and whatnot and I'm running into a white grub here and there and um, should I be concerned about you know what are they doing hanging out in the soil in those wood chips and is it it may or may not be the same grub right it may not it may not be a June beetle grub and I'm sure you have id characters and to tell but do i need to be concerned about them if i see them in my perennial beds or in my landscape beds right generally not you know that the thing people have to remember is that the the northern mass chafer which is the main white grub that we deal with in turf is a native insect so they are here all the time they naturally evolved in nebraska they're not an imported um, uh, you know, infestation of some type. I see. Um, the, the, so we always have some of them. There's always some of them out there. Um, for turf, the damaging level is if you get 8 to 10 per square foot, and that's mm. when you start to see damage in turf. I see. Um, they will all feed on plant roots, but if you have one or two here and there in a ornamental bed or in a, in a vegetable garden, um, it's really nothing to be concerned about because they're they're not going to do enough damage at that low level that you're really going to see anything, you know. And if you run into them, just throw them up on the surface of the soil, and the birds will come and eat them. And you know that's really all you need to to think about. But it's when you get that eight to ten per square foot and above in turf that you you start to see damage. Right, and and I noticed, folks, she's she was saying in turf. So if you get the eight to ten per square foot in a landscape bed. Well, there's probably not going to be that, first of all, no, right? Right, yeah, that would be extremely unlikely to yeah. run into that in a landscape bed because the white grubs do prefer the roots of turf grasses. They're, mm-hmm. they're more commonly associated with turf. They, mm-hmm. they don't tend to reach those damaging levels in landscape beds and ornamental beds and things like that. And it is kind of fun, I must admit, you know, depending on the grub. I remember we were taking down a tree once and there were some big fat grubs uh, feeding on the dead wood in that tree. And, uh, you know, at the time we were kind of like, you know, it was just kind of freaky because this was a big old fat one-inch grub, right? Big old chunky thing. You don't know what beetle it belonged to or whatever it belonged to, but we just kind of set the thing up on top of a stump of the tree we cut down, and uh, man, uh, it was gone within 
probably a minute, a bird came down, <laughs> spotted yeah. that thing and came down and said, ah, oh, don't mind if I do. Thank you for the lunch, That's fellas. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, and, and so, so you'll see that folks, especially in the fall, late summer, uh, flocks of starlings, uh, you, you'll certainly see, uh, blackbirds do that, right, Sarah, where they're kind mm-hmm. of, you're kind of watching them and they're all kind of doing their dance in the lawn and then, you know, digging their beak down in there. I'm assuming they're probably going after grubs, right? It could be grubs would probably be one of the the more common insects they would be going after. Of course, any other kind of soil insect that they could find, they would eat too. Right. But grubs would be a big one that would draw them to a lawn. Yeah. So when you see them feeding in groups, you know, for me, it's kind of like going, should I be going to check to see how bad it is? Because if if a hundred starlings are showing up in my lawn, working it over, you could say, well. It was it was cheap uh, lawn care. You know you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to go through the uh, the company to, to to treat them or anything. But anyway, yeah. So I just wanted to dispel the myth that if you see grubs in your landscape, that that you should be freaking out. It's uh, it's just all a part of nature, and and uh, you know welcome the little critters. Don't uh, you don't have to do anything about it. So well, that's the other good. thing to think about too, Bob, is that so that the the grubs that people might find in their vegetable garden or their landscaping bed when they're planting in the spring those are the mature grubs that are hatching out now as adults and so people sometimes want to try to kill those mature grubs that they see in the early spring and we really don't recommend that for a couple of reasons first of all they're pretty mature and they're hard to kill Mm. so you know the insecticides that you would need to use to kill them would be some of the more um, harsher chemicals. Mm. Plus, they're really not feeding much in the spring. I see. So the the majority of the damage that white grubs are going to do is done in the fall. It's done in the the um, July, August, September time frame. I see. So they're really not very damaging in the spring. And given the fact that they're so hard to kill, you know, the recommendation is to wait until the next generation hatches out, usually around, you know, um, beginning to mid-June, and go after them if control is even needed go after them in that time frame and not try to uh, tr- control white grubs in in say april and may gotcha gotcha uh, for some reason in my brain i always heard you know the first week in july or is a good time uh, is that too late or are you saying you should do a little earlier no um you know it, and it's interesting uh as we've have new generations of entomologists the recommendations you know change over time too uh-huh. and, and probably that's due to new research also but um the old recommendation used to be to apply the grub control around the last week in may oh. but i think now they're they've pushed that back now more to like you know mid-june late june okay um um because the the young grubs that are present at that time, if you apply your insecticide in that time and they pick it up as they're feeding, you'll have a very good level of control. Very good. Well, I just want to remind you, like like Sarah said, you don't have to do that. This is just, you know, kind of FYI stuff. And, and right. just Precisely remember... with the history of yeah, a problem. Yeah, and if, you, and if you're putting down those chemicals, well, somebody's going to be feeding on those critters. And, uh, you know the birds are going to also get sick so don't uh, so so think about that you know well and Sarah you also mentioned you know right now you're getting a lot of calls and I I could have been one of those calls too because we planted tomatoes and you know how it is folks planting tomatoes in Nebraska there's people if you're growing com- tomatoes for let's say commercial interests or the farmer's market or whatever you're not going to take your chances and uh, oftentimes we do that and uh, you know you may plant them in early May 
And uh, all of a sudden we get a low like we did, gosh, what, twice in May now where we've been hinting at a frost. And uh, I don't know what last night's low was, but it seems to me it was supposed to be in the upper 30s. And then just last week or earlier this week, whenever it was, we were at like 34, I think somebody said. You know, it was funny. I'm, I was just putting some weather data together for another thing that I'm writing, Bob. We had some near freezing temperatures on May 22nd, Wow! you know, which was Sunday. Okay. Um, here in the Lincoln area, we got down to about 34. Wow. Um, so yeah, we've had had some pretty cool nights. You know, was that a May. record? I can't remember if that I was a record or not. Don't, I, uh, well, the source that I was looking at didn't indicate if it was a record, so okay. I'm not sure. Well, if it wasn't a record, it was in the top five. That's probably <laughs> probably for sure. Well, yeah, and so so just know you can plant your tomatoes and, and try to be the early bird, whatever, get all excited about it, and, and let's throw eggplant and peppers right in with that category, basil, you know, the, the very frost-sensitive plants. And when we say frost-sensitive, yeah, a, a freeze at 32 degrees is one thing, or a frost, but uh, they don't like upper 30s either. They don't like, you know, they don't even like low 40s either. So, you know, getting those nighttime lows in the in the upper 40s to the 50s and then the highs from the 70s to the 80s, yeah, that's what that's what they want. Then they're going to start growing for you. So anyway, we plant our tomatoes. They're looking a little rough right now. And, and what I do right away, Sarah, when I plant the tomatoes, even before I water them, I'm putting mulch to cover the soil. And the reason I'm doing that is to prevent, when we do get rain, the soil splash on the leaves. And so uh, I've been guilty of planting them right away. And, uh, and not mulching them, saying, ah, I got time. You know, I'm going to let the sun warm up the soil a little bit before I put on the, uh, the mulch to protect my babies from any spores getting on there from soil splash. And then all of a sudden time passes and it's like, oh, shoot, we got two big rains in between me not mulching them. <laughs> and uh, there went my whole plan. And so, so just a light layer is good to start with. You know, you're still going to get that soil to heat up on a 95-degree day. Right. Um, so... But that mulch will help prevent the rain splash that you're talking about, Bob, and that's often uh, the way that those tomatoes first become infected with the leaf spot diseases. Mm -hmm. You know, those those fungal spores are in the soil, and when it rains, those droplets splash soil and fungal spores up onto the lowest leaves of your plants, and those become infected. Um, And then, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are familiar with this, and you just see the infection then just moves up the tomato plant, you know, throughout the whole summer growing season. Mm-hmm. But if you cover the soil with mulch, as you're talking about, Bob, that really helps eliminate that rain splash and helps slow down the infection of these leaf spot diseases on our, our popular garden vegetables like tomatoes and peppers and, and what have you. Cool, cool. So what we're talking about, folks, is little black spots on the leaves, and they'll be kind of yellowing too, right, Sarah? And it just kind of, you can tell, they look funky. And, you know, and I can, and I see it happen too, where those spot diseases will start showing up even in the container. And I blame it on, well, okay, I got a whole flat of tomatoes that I'm growing, right? And they needed to get out of their pots yesterday. And uh, it's like going, well, it's too cool. And so that's why we always tell you start your tomatoes late because, you know, starting them late, you don't need to get them in the ground till mid-May and they're going to catch any other tomato that goes in earlier, people. So if you, right. you know, start it late, if you're growing them um, in the basement or in my case, a greenhouse, well, okay, then I pulled them out of the greenhouse to harden them off 
In the meantime, it got too cool, so you'd move the flat in so it didn't freeze. Then you move it back out, and the, the flat gets rained on a couple, three times, and you're having to water it a couple, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, right? And uh, that top water, that constant top water on those leaves, and those leaves all being packed in so close together, I'll start seeing the bottom leaves, first of all, you know, getting a little yellow and then getting the spots on them. And by the time I'm ready to plant the darn things, the whole bottom half of the tomato is diseased, right? And mm-hmm. so should I then planting those, Sarah, go ahead and remove those lower leaves, kind of pinch them off? Because um, mm-hmm. they're not going to really come out of it, right? No, huh? they won't recover. Once they're infected and the, uh, the infection is will just enlarge on the leaves, it'll never get better. So it is definitely a good idea to remove those yellow leaves um, uh, on your transplants, as you're talking about, Bob, or mm-hmm. even in the garden. When you start to see the first signs of infection on your lower leaves in the garden, take those leaves off. That will help to slow the infection down so that it doesn't move up the plant as quickly. Awesome, awesome. And then you can always plant them a little deeper, can't you, because they'll form right. roots along that stem, or you can right. you can actually plant the stem along a, a long distance uh, uh, horizontally and then uh, kind of come right. out. That's a whole other subject for a whole other day. <laughs> and I'm, I'm almost out of time, folks, but uh, Dan, Dan, you are calling in. You got a question for us, Dan? Yeah, I'm at a friend's house, who we happen to have you on, and he's curious about what to do with the creeping, like Creeping Charlie, is what uh, I remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. The old infamous Creeping else. Charlie, huh, Dan? He's like, and I he, have... He's getting concerned about it. Okay. Very good. We'll talk about that. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, okay, lots bye. of questions about Creeping Charlie this spring. You know, Creeping Charlie and Henbit, we see them blooming in the spring, and they really stand out in the landscape. The thing to remember about Creeping Charlie is that it's a perennial weed. So each, each individual plant lives from year to year. So we have the very best luck at controlling perennial weeds with fall applications. So that would be September into about mid-October. So I'm saying that just to kind of um, uh, temper your expectations a little bit. You can go after it now with broadleaf herbicide. And one that I've had very good luck with is triclopyr which you can find in products labeled for brush killers or clover killers or poison ivy killers. And that's the chemical is spelled T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R. Um, so if you spray that now, you'll probably back a little bit. But you, you, you'll probably only get, you know, maybe 50, 60% control. So go after it strong in the fall, in September and October, and I think you'll have a much better kill rate with applications made then. All right. Triclopyr is a selective herbicide, won't damage your grass, but don't spray it on uh, broadleaf plants or, or shrubs or perennials right you know when i what i typically do this time of year I, I use a flat spade a sharp flat spade i'll get my little garden pillow out so my get on my knees and and i'll literally scrape right under the soil and they come yeah. off in big sheets very easily and yeah you may not get it all there might be some residual but if you get under the soil a little bit you get the crowns of that plant and i found it doesn't stand a chance now you do have to stay up on it right <laughs> and uh, i you know, and I know when it gets embedded in your plants, that's a whole nother ball game. But uh, it, it kind of becomes a nice, uh, I don't want to say stress relieving thing, but to kind of take it out on your ground ivy. Or you can do like my, my buddy Jack and Casey do and say, well, eat it. You know, get this, Sarah. I don't know if you knew this, but ground ivy was brought here many moons ago. And it kind of marched its way across the United States as, as an herb. So it was uh, people, cultures use it to flavor foods and whatnot. But it also has some serious medicinal powers to it, too. And right off the 
the top of my head. I'm not going to be able to say what for, but uh, we still haven't done it yet, but we're going to make a tincture out of that, and uh, we'll get back to you and see, uh, and, and, and flavoring, too. I know somebody that chops it up and puts it in their scrambled eggs, for the love of Pete, so wow. go figure. Take it out in your ground ivy and read up on it, you know, and, and uses for ground ivy, health benefits from ground ivy, or, or as my friend calls it, Purple Buddy. He said, if everybody just called it, rather than Creepy Charlie, you know, call it Purple Buddy, then, you, you know, you, you would love that plant rather than hate it. But uh, anyway, well, there's a caller calling in. Caller, sorry, Adrian, just too late in the day to be able to take your call. I don't want to get uh, running to the next hour. And Sarah, we're going to have to say our goodbyes because we are out of time in this fastest hour in radio. Well, thank you so much for having me on again, Bob. I, I always enjoy. Yeah, it's always fun. It, you know, and, and honestly, I'd, we didn't even, I didn't even say to you, well, here, let's talk about this because I knew once I had you on, you and I could blab for hours and just chat. Yeah, yeah. just chat. So <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah. Keep up the great work. My pleasure. Take care, Bob. All right. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that is Sarah Browning with Lancaster County Extension Horticulturist. And I'm sorry, caller, I'm not going to be able to take your call. I'm going to have to move on.org. And uh, so we'll do call in next week. Uh, hopefully we'll, you still have your question fresh in your mind, and we'd love to hear from you. All right, uh, you guys take it easy out there and uh, enjoy this beautiful, balmy spring day that we have today. It's all going to get better tomorrow and a beautiful weekend on tap. And uh, take care out there. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place right here on How's It Growing.